Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by DreamDrive.life. Explore Japan in comfort and style in a rental customized camper van. Discount code later in the podcast. Hello, everybody. This episode, it's beautiful travel stories from rural Japan, fascinating historical storytelling, and insightful cultural observations with Diane Tincher. Diane has been in Japan for 35 years, lived in Kagoshima for 26 years, the mother of eight kids, and the owner of the must-see website, More Than Tokyo. She is a prolific writer of little-known historical stories she researches in Japanese, an accomplished tour guide for Walk Japan, and her knowledge of Japanese history, folklore, and idyllic rural travel spots is second to none. Today, you will hear stories where you can hike an active volcano, a brief history of Amaterasu, the Japanese sun goddess, and the Tanokami, cute little rice field gods. Also, two reasons English in Japan is so wacky and the only occasion when Japanese are never humble. Get ready to take notes. It's a unique travelogue mixed with entertaining history, fun cultural missteps, and language faux pas. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Diane Tincher. So, uh, Diane, recently I'm discovering many foreign writers living in Japan who write about Japanese culture, travels, food and beverage, etc., including yourself. Why am I seeing so many Japan insiders writing great articles these days? Well, I can only speak for myself on that one. I love studying Japanese history and I love stories. I've always enjoyed writing. So you put those together and you have me writing obscure stories of Japanese history. But pre-COVID, I used to lead tours with Walk Japan and I would take people along the Nakasendo or the Kumano Kodo. The Nakasendo is the old Edo-era road that went through the mountains, as the name Nakasendo means, from Kyoto to Tokyo. And the Kumano Kodo is an old series of pilgrimage routes on the key peninsula in Wakayama. It's not the Tokaido-sen? The Tokaido also connected Kyoto to Tokyo back in the Edo era, but that went along the coast. But the Nakasendo was also used for the daimyos to go from their local places to Tokyo, as they had to do every other year. It was called the Princesses Highway because the princesses that would go to marry the shoguns traveled along that mountain route. So you do know your history, I can tell already. We were going to get to some of these historical stories, but you're jumping right in. (laughs) I love it. So once the borders closed with COVID, I had no one to tell my stories to. That factored into my writing as well. I really am seeing a lot of writers. I think it's a combination of, as you said, yeah, the pandemic, people needing a creative outlet. Also, the technologies have advanced. There's so many new platforms to write on. That's true. I discovered your writings on Medium on Japonica. Why did you choose the Medium platform? And specifically, why did you choose Japonica for your writing? Well, funny thing about Medium. When it first started about maybe 10 years ago, I became a subscriber and I subscribed for two years because I liked the concept of supporting people directly for good writing. But 
it was funny that I didn't connect it at all with, as an opportunity for myself to write. And just recently, last year, it dawned on me, well, I could write there too. I started in the hopes of gaining an audience for my writing and even perhaps maybe making a few yen. I'm a subscriber as well. It's not expensive at all. It's like, what, $5 a month or something yes, like yes. that? Yes, yes. It's very reasonable. I started my own pub on Medium last year, more than Tokyo. But then when my website started, I deleted my own pub. Well, whether that was a good decision or not, I don't know. But that's what I did. And I also write for Japonica, but I also write for Coffee Times or just different publications that I want to submit something to. I'll, I'll see if I can become a writer and submit Coffee something Times to them. Coffee Times is another Medium platform, right? Correct. Another publication. Anybody can start a publication on Medium. Okay, so that's the correct terminology. Japonica, Coffee Times, they are publications on the Medium platform. Correct. Okay, got it. Your website is called More Than Tokyo, with a byline exploring the wonders of a rural Japan. I used to work in the travel industry, mm -hmm. and I still have a soft spot for that industry. So when I came across your website, I thought this focus, this content is brilliant. Could you share the backstory of More Than Tokyo? I've lived in Kagoshima for about 26 years. That's definitely out of Tokyo. Around Kagoshima, you can see Heian era, a thousand years ago, Heian era graves, tombs, and statuary. I always wonder, like, why do people go to Kyoto? I mean, if Kyoto's so crowded, and you could just go outside to rural areas and find these beautiful old statuary, beautiful old shrines and temples that are just amazing. And I was talking to my kids on uh, a group chat, saying that very thing, and I was saying, Japan is just so much more than Kyoto. And then one of my sons said, wait a minute, most people think of Tokyo when they think of Japan. Wouldn't you think it's more than Tokyo? I was like, yes. And so right then and there, my oldest, oldest son said, I'm going to buy the domain name. And that's how More Than Tokyo was started. So since that time, I've been focusing on my website, you know, putting more content, more original content there. Didn't you also plan to be a tour guide? I mean, this is obviously before the, the pandemic started. Wasn't that part of the More Than Tokyo website? No, I have been um, leading tours with Walk Japan, which is a, a, I'm a freelance tour leader. I really enjoyed taking foreigners on the different old roads of Japan. Things are very traditional, and that's where you can see the real Japan, in my opinion. For sure. Was it easy to get customers? Walk Japan is an excellent company. They've been written up in Forbes and National Geographic. Okay. So people in the, in the foreign countries are fairly aware of Walk Japan. It's the premier travel company for hiking tours in Japan. There's no trouble getting customers. And did you specialize in the Kagoshima or Kyushu area, or did, were you all, all Japan? All Japan. Wow. What's your favorite walk? Perhaps the Kumano Kodo. That's the old pilgrimage route in Kitaki Peninsula, Wakayama, which is a UNESCO World Heritage. Yes. It's one of the two pilgrimage routes that are UNESCO Heritage routes. It goes from where to where? Historically, it went from Kyoto to the Kumano Sansan, which are the Hongu, which is a big shrine and called Hongu Taisha, then Nachi Taisha by the beautiful waterfall. This is in Wakayama? 
Wakayama. But there are different routes. There's a route that the uh, emperors used to take, there's other pilgrimage routes, there's routes that the aesthetic monks would take. So it's a whole series of pilgrimage trails. The tour I do starts in Osaka, and then we go up to Koyosan and yeah. spend a night at a temple, and then we visit the three main shrines. We just take the most beautiful spots. So we go to Tanabe, and we walk up a mountain, and the trails there are very rugged and full of tree roots and stones. So it's not an easy walk in the park. It's dirt and tree roots and okay. stones that people put there in the olden days that are all moss covered and beautiful. Tokyo and Kyoto, there are a lot of great things to do. Why should travelers to Japan explore rural Japan? Well, let me just tell you three good reasons why you should visit rural Japan. First of all, you will see Japanese culture in its natural form. And it's just beautiful. I'll give you some examples. Up in Aomori Prefecture, to the, in the north of Honshu, there is a lake called Towada. Now this lake was made of like a national scenic spot in the 1930s and it was all the rage and then, I, and then, then after the war, busloads of people through the 60s, busloads of people were visiting this place and then I don't know what happened but now it's a little bit of a ghost town but that doesn't mean the lake's not beautiful. It's highly worth a visit and especially if you visit in the fall because going north from Lake Towada is the Oirase Gorge, which is just magnificently beautiful in the fall. It's like otherworldly beautiful. Spend a day hiking the length of that gorge, and then the next day, go a little bit north, and you're gonna find a group of ponds called Sutanuma. The ponds reflect the foliage and the beautiful koyo, which wow. is a Japanese word for leaves that change color in the fall. We yep. really need that word in English, one word, koyo. Yeah. Which, isn't that better than leaves that change color in the fall? We say the fall colors. Okay, the fall colors, thank you. But anyway, they're beautiful, reflected words. in the lake. Sounds it's gorgeous. just otherworldly. That's just one place. That's in Aomori. Then you go down to Yamagata, and you should climb Yamadera. Yamadera, it means mountain temple. There's a, about a thousand steps up, but don't be intimidated, they're not very hard. And you climb up there and you see some spectacular views. And then after you climb back down, just go four kilometers to the east, and you're going to come to a place with the amazing name of Omoshiroyama, which means interesting mountain. In Omoshiroyama, there is a river called the Koyo River and you hike along that river, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. This was not on any maps that I saw of recommended places to visit. I just stumbled upon it when I was going to Yamadera, and I was like, what is this Omoshiroyama? What a funny name. And I saw that there was a hiking course, so I did it, and it was just breathtaking, amazingly beautiful. And maybe I saved the best for last. People should visit Kagoshima. There is an active volcano across the bay that right. spews forth ash and steam every single day. Up to the north is a beautiful volcanic mountain range. Have you ever hiked on a live volcano? If not, 
go to Kagoshima and do it in Kirishima. It's just gorgeous. You can hike up to the highest peak is Karakune Dake, 1,700 meters. Yep. Then you can hike down and around Onami Ike, which is the highest crater lake in the country. And then hike on back down to the plateau. Or you can go up Mount Takachiho, which is where the sun goddess, Amaterasu, Amaterasu Okami's grandson, Nini, came down through the clouds and set, set foot on Takachiho. And that was when the gods came down to earth and his great-great-grandson down the line was the first emperor of Japan. Right. And this is why Amaterasu Okami is the ancestor of all Japanese emperors. You gotta go and see that. Wow, well that, after that story, you can't. That You would think that that would be the most sacred spot in all of Japan. You would think, huh? Don't forget Sengangen. Oh, Sengangen. That's in Kagoshima. Uh, yes. Alex Bradshaw is going to listen to this podcast. Sorry, Alex. And if you don't mention Sengayen, he's going to unfriend you. <laughs> yes, well, Sengayen is the ancient home of the Shimazu family, who were remarkable yes. lords over the, the southern area of Kyushu for what? How many? 700 years was it, Alex? I believe that's correct. Wow. And their uh, estate is still there, beautiful gardens, a beautiful house, definitely worth a visit. What's interesting about the Sengayan Garden is that it uses what's called um, borrowed landscape, and it uses the Sakurajima volcano as the background borrowed landscape in the garden, which is quite a sight to see. That's amazing, and that's a very culturally a Japanese thing to do. Isn't it? So you've been talking about all these great sites, all this great history, but you've forgotten one important aspect of these adventures, Diane. Experiencing the culinary delights, the food and drink specialties of that region. And the locals are always so proud to introduce these to you. That might be the only area where Japanese are not humble. Uh, oh, we have the best miso, or the sweetest corn, or the purest sake, whatever it is, they are willing to brag about it. This is true. And in Kagoshima, you've got some great culinary delights. Oh yes, indeed, we have raw chicken. <laughs> when I first moved to Kagoshima, we were in this little neighborhood and we had a neighborhood meeting and one of the farmers had just gone and killed a chicken and he sliced it up so we had chicken sashimi and he was passing it around not just the meat but the heart the gizzard and the liver they were eating raw that was a bit much but in kagoshima we have very delicious beef and pork and sweet potatoes yes. sweet potatoes in kagoshima are called karai imo which means chinese potatoes because those potatoes came from China through the Liukyu Islands via a man named Maida who brought them to his little garden in southern Kagoshima called Ibuzuki. But I'm very impressed at your level of knowledge. Approximately how much can you earn writing for Medium? 
you hear about these people that make thousands of dollars a month, and then you hear about people like myself that just make a few dollars a month, or like, hey, I covered my membership fee. That's great. I'm a winner, yeah. you know. But I think the secret is that you have to write good quality content, and you have to have a lot of content okay. on the site. Because I'm seeing articles I wrote last year, you know. 11 cents or 50 cents or something and if you have a couple hundred articles up that's going to add up it adds up but i don't i have um i have maybe 60 articles or so on medium i do follow you on medium Mm -hmm. so if i go to your profile Mm -hmm. then i get to see all of your articles whether they're on the japonica publication or the coffee times publication Mm -hmm. or your own publication Mm -hmm. but if i go to japonica i see your article sprinkled in with all the other writers that they have on Japonica. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're writing for Medium to retire. You're probably doing it as a creative outlet because I can see that your writing is really inspirational and you put a lot of thought into it. And if you can make a little bit of money on the side, it's just a bonus. Yes, there have been some people on Medium that give advice to new writers, for example. Oh, post something every single day. Post every day. And I'm like, why would you do that? Don't you want something with good quality? Like, I spent weeks researching some of my articles, like the one on Hattori Masanari, the ninja. That was really hard to research because there was so little written about him. And it was all these Japanese... Um, stories that contradicted each other so I had to like sift through them all and figure out which was the most consistent which told the most consistent story and then put that together and that's how I got that story but it took me weeks well you're talking about quality over quantity and I think there's a balance there I think Mm -hmm. you do need to have a certain level same with a podcast Mm -hmm. you need to have a certain level of consistency but you need to have that great content because people would rather read well-researched, well-written. Mm. They'd rather read one a month or one every two weeks than read subpar or listen to a subpar podcast every other day. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically, for sure. You are a great storyteller, especially when it comes to little-known stories of Japanese history. You write very intriguing titles such as the Takarajima Incident, Tragedy on Treasure Island, Mm. or Japan's Three Most Infamous Vengeful Ghosts. And when you research a lot of these historical stories, you research them in Japanese, don't you? I end up having to because there's so little written in English. This podcast is one-on-one. It's an interview format. However, scripted stories with a single narrator format are very popular. Have you ever thought about creating your own podcast to bring some of these stories, because you're such a great storyteller, bring them to life in the single narrator format? You have the content for it. You could collaborate your blog and your writings on Medium with the podcast Mm -hmm. so people could read about it or they could listen to it. I have never thought about that. Sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Would you listen to it? I would. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families. Go to dreamdrive.life 
to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. Diane, I'm going to change gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about some of your writings that I read on your website, More Than Tokyo. They're also published on Japonica. And there are three articles that I really like. They are interesting and entertaining, but they also shed an insight into Japanese culture. And I also have anecdotal stories myself, which complement your observations. The first one is 10 Essential Japanese Phrases to Learn Today. Now, I won't go into all 10, but there were three that kind of stood out. Mm-hmm. Number seven was sumimasen. Yes. Which is extremely convenient word in Japanese. It can mean excuse me, it can mean I'm sorry. Number three was something something idesuka. Yes. Asking for permission. But if you combine those two, mm-hmm. sumimasen. Desuka, you can pretty much ask to do anything. It's in context. If you're holding a camera and you say sumimasen desuka, it obviously means, can I take a picture? Mm-hmm. My Japanese teacher, she's 80 years old. She's been teaching foreigners Japanese for over 55 years. She was the one that was like, oh, just teach them to gesture and say desuka. She said, if they could just learn that, we would all really appreciate it. She yeah. said, using the we Japanese. Wadewade Nihonjin. And number two, onagai shimasu. Mm-hmm. is so generically convenient, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. I was thinking about that onagai word and that we need it in English. And the closest thing I could come to explaining its meaning is if you've seen the TV series Parks and Recreation, there's a character, Ron Swanson, and whenever he asks somebody to do something, he says, please and thank you. And I thought, whoa, that's pretty close to onegaishimasu. It's a, please, can you do this, and thank you for doing it. Yeah, very good. But what I really liked about this article, not just the 10 essential Japanese phrases to learn today, but you explained something at the end of that article, and I've never seen it written about before, a note about paying. When paying with your credit card, don't be surprised when the cashier holds up one finger and asks you, Ikkai borai desu ka? In Japan, we're given the option to pay once or to split payments into revolving charges. Just say hi and let the cashier know that one payment is fine. In the West, we don't have that option of paying in multiple payments. So even if you speak fluent English, do you want to pay once or twice a revolving payment? They're not even going to understand the concept of what you're talking about. This is true. When I first came to Japan in 1991, mm-hmm. I was working at a department store. Uh-huh. And I was working in the menswear department. And from time to time, I would get these panicked calls. Mm-hmm. Andrew, can you please come to the third floor? We have a foreign guest and there's a communication breakdown. So I would race down there in Nine times out of ten, that the problem would be that exact issue. Really? It was the confusion over the credit card payment. How amazing. And I use that example now. We operate 42 retail stores. Uh-huh. And every three months, we have a store manager's meeting. And sometimes I bring up this topic. When foreign guests come into the shop and they pay by credit card, do not ask 
ask if they want to pay once or twice or revolving. They'll, it will just confuse them and it'll become a nightmare for you. By default, just do one payment. Ikkaiborai only. Save yourself headaches. That's great advice. <laughs> the second article I liked. Three big mistakes I made in learning Japanese. The first one, thinking that all polite words work both ways. This was funny. You give a great example of itadaku. Could you explain that one? Oh, this is so embarrassing. There's a word itadaku, which means to humbly receive. Me thinking with my American brain, okay, humbly receive, itadaku, cool. I can use that. I can use that word, I receive, thank you kind of thing. So whenever I would give a present to somebody, I would say itadaite kudasai, please accept this. And I'm thinking I'm being really humble, you know. Right. Disaster. So I presented my Japanese teacher with a, a gift I brought for her, and I said, itadaite kudasai, and she, yes. she makes this face and she rubs her arms and she goes, oh, oh, that, that makes the hair on my arms stand on end, that's so rude. And I'm like, what? I've been saying that for years. And she said, you only, you only say that going down, like it's not something you say to somebody going up. So the proper thing would for me to say would be, uh, here's this crappy present I bought for you. It's not worthy of your greatness, uh, but please humbly accept my gift. Yeah, so you have to be humble when giving the gift, but you used the opposite honorific form of giving somebody. So you were almost like saying, oh, please accept my awesome gift present. Yes, exactly. That was my mistake. But on my behalf, I can say that because my tone was so filled with humility, right. I'd like to think the people understood. <laughs> Number two, thinking that Japanese is anything at all like English. And I am completely guilty of this. Mm, Sometimes the English comes first, and then I directly translate into Japanese in my head. For example, we're both from the U.S. Mm -hmm. We would often give friends or family... If we were somewhere and we found the perfect gift for this person, we would tell them, Oh, Diane, I was at this souvenir shop and I totally thought of you. I knew you would love this, so here's the gift. But if you translate that into Japanese, it's a disaster, similar to what you were just talking about. Exactly. It would just sound like a pompous ass. <laughs> and the last one. Thinking Japanese is straightforward. This feeds into the hone and the tatemai and also the um, reading the air and also the high context, low context part of Japanese language, doesn't it? Yes. You give the story of the word muzukashi desu. Yes. Japanese don't directly say no. They often say muzukashi, which means it's difficult. That's now, right. climbing a mountain is difficult, but you do it. That's Studying right. Japanese is a difficult, but you do it, mm -hmm. right? Going, yes. you know, running a marathon, definitely difficult, but you try it. Right. But in Japanese, when they say difficult, they basically mean no. That's right. I learned that the hard way. Yeah, I did too. That's the first time I realized studying Japanese that there was this nuanced form to Japanese language. Because I had a similar situation where I was asking for something and I kept hearing muzukashi over and over and over and I kept questioning it. Well, if it's difficult, it means it's not impossible. 
but they just kept saying muzukashi, muzukashi, and I go, ah, I see, they're just being polite. My early faux pas in Japanese. In Japanese, when you take an adjective and put so at the end, mm. it means it feels like, or it looks like, or it seems like. So if you say muzukashi so, it seems difficult. Tanoshi so looks fun, seems fun, or oishi so looks delicious. Mm. Imagine my horror when my friend showed me her new baby and I thought it was so cute. <laughs> I said, kawaii so. <laughs> Which kawaii so in Japanese means I feel pity or I feel sorry for you. Poor thing. It doesn't mean so cute, something like that. Mm. That was my big faux pas. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> feel free to use it. <laughs> And the third story. Two big reasons why English in Japan is so wacky. Ah. I love this one. You don't mean people's speaking English is wacky. You mean like why on menus, signage, or even t-shirts, English is so wacky. Yes, that is correct. It's amazing. And so one would think, whoa, first blush, you know, why doesn't somebody just check that? What's the problem? I mean, it's so easy to check it. But right. there are some issues. What are those two reasons? Well, my first reason was that Japanese prefer to work with other Japanese. They feel more comfortable. There are societal rules. Japan is a country of rules, both written and unwritten. And the unwritten ones are vast. Within those rules are how to deal with other Japanese people. You put a foreigner in the mix, and there's no real rules on how to work with that person. So I think Japanese feel more comfortable just getting another Japanese person to do the English. So maybe they passed a test or some written test that showed that they could fill in the right answers or whatever. So they have some sort of English cred. So then they're believed. And then the person that requested it doesn't speak English. So hey, the letters on the page look pretty good, fine. Another reason I think is the Dunning-Kruger effect, which we all tend to fall prey to. It's just the simple fact that for someone to understand their lack of expertise in a matter, they would have to have that expertise so they could see where they're lacking. We don't have that because we only know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. If a person does some English translation, they think they got it down because that's as far as their expertise goes. So they're naturally going to think it's fine. And then again, they hand it to the Japanese person that can't read English. Hey, it looks good on the page. Yeah. But that's when you come up with something that I like to call word salad. Word salads. Oh, yeah. You just take a bunch of English words, you throw them on a page, and they look pretty nice in paragraph form. That's word salad. And you'll see a lot of English in Japan written in that style. Yeah. And to be clear, this is not a criticism or a negative statement about it because most of them are charmingly humorous, aren't this they? This is true, most are. Some can be a little frustrating, but most are quite amazingly funny. I used to work for a company which had a technology for making package dummies or package samples. And most of our customers were FMCG companies, mainly food and beverage. So I would get to see packaging before it went to market, mm -hmm. and some of it had the wacky English. And I would contact the customer, and I would say, I'm a native English speaker. 
your English is unnatural. Would you like me to correct it for you? 50% of the time, they would say, yes, please. The other 50% of the time, they said, no, thank you. We want to keep it as it is. How interesting. And they gave one big reason, but I suspect there was another reason. The first reason that they always gave, it's cosmetic English. Ah, it doesn't that's matter. a good way to call it. Yeah, it's mm. cosmetic. It doesn't matter what it says, it just looks good, and we're fine with that. The second reason is the artwork was approved already. And if they have to change it, it means they have to go back through that approval process again. It might embarrass some people, perhaps. They didn't want to go through that whole process again. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Those are the three articles I really like. Is there another article that you think people listening to this podcast should definitely read? I really like the story of how um, during the Edo era, when Japan was basically closed to outsiders... Because it was close to outsiders, forbidden fruit is sweet. And I think it made people rather curious about foreign things. And one of those people that was curious was Tokugawa Yoshimune, shogun in the early 1700s. He was very curious about elephants. So he sent word to Nagasaki and he requested that elephants be brought to Edo. So they, a Chinese merchant there ordered a couple elephants from Vietnam. This was before Amazon, right? This was well before Amazon, so what could you do when you needed an elephant? What I, I wrote the story about the elephant who came to Japan and received a court rank from the emperor. So if you want to read about that, you can easily find it on More Than Tokyo. Wow, Diane, what a teaser. Thank you. <laughs> So 35 years in Japan, what makes living in Japan special for you, Diane? Well, I love the nature, the efficiency. I love that things are on time. I love the Japanese post office. The postmen are so friendly and helpful. To send packages overseas is generally quite inexpensive and very efficient. I love that the trains are fast and very clean and on time. I love the infrastructure here. And I love the food. The food is fantastic. Where I live, I can just walk up the street and buy bundles of freshly picked vegetables that some farmer has put out that morning. For a, Get 100 yen, put it in the box, and take a bunch of vegetables. It's so fresh. I love that food is seasonal here, and I don't go to a supermarket and see stuff from all over the world, but I only see what's in season. As the theory goes in Japan, the seasonal food is what you need to keep your body healthy during that time of year. I love that that's respected. No wonder Washoku is on the UNESCO intangible yeah. list. That's interesting what you say about seasonality. You can go to a supermarket, a restaurant, and tell what season it is by just looking at the menu and what's in the produce department. Yeah. Yes. What is your favorite Japanese word or phrase which does not have a direct English translation? I have two. You have two? I you do. Have, you only get one, but I'll give you a bonus one. Oh, you're so kind. Okay, otsukare-sama desu. I love this one. I don't know how it is in other areas of Japan, but in my area of Japan, I use this expression many times a day. I see somebody in the locker room, otsukare-sama desu. They say, otsukare-sama desu to me. 
it's like our hello almost. I see somebody working in a field, Otsukane Samadesu, they say to me. People walking down the street will tell me Otsukane Samadesu, and I'm like, whoa. So what does this mean? It means, literally, you look tired. But the real nuance is, I respect you, and I think what you're doing is worthwhile. That's a lovely sentiment. Usually it's said after work is done. It's a, a type of uh, salutation to recognize your hard work and praise you for that. Very good. My second one is komorebi. Komorebi, you've probably heard that one. But that literally means sunlight leaking through trees. So what? Sunlight leaking through trees? You can picture it though, the sunlight filtering through the leaves and the leaves are blowing in the breeze and the sunlight is moving on the ground. Now, isn't that a beautiful thing? So having a word, komorebi, that means that beautiful picture, that seems to um, give it more power. And having a word for something calls your attention to it. So you have this word komorebi and then you kind of see the komorebi the beauty of it all. You can just picture it when you see it in the forest, you know, ah, oh, look at that beautiful komorebi. Having a word really gives it real essence. Yeah, it's similar to forest bathing, shinrin-yoku, right? Yes, yes, shinrin-yoku. When you are forest bathing, you will see lots of komorebi. <laughs> For sure. Wow, I like that word too. Diane, is there anything I didn't ask you today or anything that you wanted to talk about before we wrap it up? Oh, there are so many stories to be told. Southern Kyushu is famous for having rice field god statues. Nowhere else in the country are there rice field god statues, and they're called Ta no Kami, rice field god. If you come to Southern Kyushu, you should definitely hunt for them. It's like a treasure hunt. You can find them in rice fields, beside the roads. You can find them in shrines where they've been rescued. And they're just delightful little happy statues of a, a, a person holding a rice paddle. And they usually have like a basket on their head. Yeah. Super cute statues. And they even paint them sometimes during the year to show respect to them. So you'll wow. see these amazingly painted statues called Tanokami. Is it for religious purposes or is it like a scarecrow thing? Definitely religious purposes. The Tanokami are the mountain gods during the winter. So in the springtime, the Tanokami come down. They're prayed to for the rice planting. They watch over the fields during the rice season. And after harvest, they go back to the mountains and become mountain gods. Well, you are a fantastic photographer. Oh, thank you. I haven't seen all of your photos on your website. Do you have many photos of these Tanokami as well? Oh yes, of course. Where, I love Tanokami. Okay, so where can people see your photos? Where can they read your writing? Well, my website is called morethantokyo.com. I have an Instagram account also called More Than Tokyo, and I write on medium.com, which is under my name, Diane Tincher. So those three places. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your great stories. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. It's been nothing but a pleasure. And that was Diane Tincher, travel writer, cultural observer, and historical researcher. Read all of her stories at morethantokyo.com or search Diane Tincher on Medium or Japonica. You will not be disappointed. For more discussions like this with other Japan insiders, go to nowandzen.jp for all 60-plus episodes. Thank you for listening, and catch you next time. Bye, everyone.
Thank you.